sauropods obviously are the best. <laughs> I like sauropods. So that's just a, that's just yeah, but that's just like a fact, man. They're interesting. I'll give you that. South Hispanians all the way, like I keep saying. Yeah, yeah, they're pretty good too. Welcome to episode 62. No, I'm John. Darren Nash. <laughs> episode 8. And that's Darth Vader. <laughs> yep. That was pretty good, wasn't it? That was the best intro. You, you thought I couldn't do it. I thought you couldn't do it. You proved me wrong. Um, yeah, welcome to all 11.4 million listeners, world famous um do any follow-up from last time uh, <laughs> um do i have any follow-up from last time well it's such a long time ago darren i just, yeah. just i just can't really remember mists of time yeah. yeah um anyway news from the world of darren and john <laughs> have you done anything interesting and exciting since last time john i ate some pokebox Pokey box. I had some some cheap noodles. Um, uh, sorry, are we in news from the world of Darren and John? Can't remember. Yeah, I don't know why you've scheduled this, but yes, we are. Right. Well, because since we last spoke, do you know what's arrived? The two-volume Palace Kimridge Clay Fossils of the Kimridge Clay Formation, volumes one and two with a combined page size of approximately 629 pages-ish. Um, <laughs> they do look substantial. They do look substantial. The previous record, I believe, was the... Uh, well, I don't believe, I know. I have it over here. previous record was English Wealden Fossils, which is a weighty and substantial brick-like... 769 pages now i thought that they'd split this one into two volumes because there comes a point when basically books become too thick for the binding yeah however 629 pages versus 769 obviously they could have done it they could have done it in one volume but um, for whatever reason economics i don't know i mean it's way more convenient if you're interested in vertebrates because the slim volume is the vertebrate one, and the thick volume is the invertebrates one. Mm. They're different in price, £18 versus £24. So, um, yeah, okay, so you, would get, yep. you get to ignore invertebrates if that's how you, you can choose to save a bit of money. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they're edited by David Martyr and Steve Etches. And there was... Such is the interest in the Kimridge Clay Formation, and in particular the um, Etches Collection Museum of Jurassic Life, I think it's called, at Kimridge Bay, which opened in 2016, I think. Um, such is the interest and such is the, you know, the, the, the propensity to do media-related things for that museum that there was going to be a press release and a, a press conference for the publication of this book. As you know, let's, let's talk about the Kimridge Clay and its amazing fossils. Unfortunately... It was published on like the same day as the Brazilian theropod Uberijara. And for those of you who don't know, Uberijara 
uh, a small, very poorly preserved uh, Cretaceous Brazilian theropod, supposedly with long spear-like structures growing out of like its upper arms or shoulder region. Um, that became a little controversial, shall we say, because it's one of these fossils that somehow snuck out of Brazil uh, and was published by a you know mostly British team. And um, there was lots of call for it, like, you know, to like, what's the, you know, what's the story here? How come it's outside of Brazil? Um, I know something of the inside story here, obviously, as a PhD student, a former PhD student of Dave Martell himself. I tend not to talk about it too much for obvious reasons. But, um, you know, when I was a PhD student, um, I did work on, I did publish on uh, Brazilian um, material, which uh, almost certainly is out of Brazil illegally. Um, I mean, mm. to, 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 I, I, this is this is no excuse. It's no, um, this isn't this isn't like a sufficiently robust defense or get out. But I would say that today I wouldn't touch any of that stuff with a barge pole. I think that some of the stuff I did um, back in my time with Dave Martell um, was because I was a naive, uh, you know, PhD student, not really aware of that. It, it wasn't part of the discussion back then. It, sh it should have been, but it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a reasonable assumption that you being told to work on things that are legitimate. I mean, it just seems reasonable yeah. as a as a student. Absolutely, you don't think that someone's gonna, yeah. Well, and I can see why that doesn't cross your mind. I mean, it might now because it's become a bigger issue, and I think most people on Twitter are aware of this sort of thing. But back in the day, it certainly wasn't. Back when you were a little boy, and you know. A little boy. Didn't even have tel telephones and stuff. How were you meant to know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, plus, of course, if you are working with Dr. Dave Martell, who, um, you know, if he's your, like your 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 senior, you're like a you know leader, your group research, your the leader of your, your particular academic group you're in, is uh, the particular view he holds on these things is, let's say, it's a very strongly held position that um, is at one end of the spectrum. <laughs> and even today, uh, he's he's had to like backtrack a little bit since the uh, Uber Ajara controversy. But um, if on the one hand, you've got people saying that, yeah, it's wrong that these specimens are outside of, you know, whatever country it is, and specifically Brazil here, but if it's wrong these things are out of the country, then let's investigate the, the story and let's get them back to the country. Let's work with the people in the country where the fossils come from and let's make sure this doesn't happen again. Let's have good relations. Uh, let's respect, you know, local laws, you know, respe respective to the respective country. And, you know, if, if there's any discussion about specific provenance let's get all that sorted recognizing whatever recognizing everything from international and national law to indigenous involvement in mm. the you know localities let, let's let's work with all that you got that and then the other side you got look these fossils <laughs> they come out of that country they're here now end of story that's enough, right? You got, you got, to, and it's and it's just as well they're not back in that other country because they can't even look after. If you've um, you have those strongly opposing views, which by the way I was cartoonishly mischaracterizing there. Um, mm. Yeah, like what am I even saying? I'm saying that I'm saying that Dave's got a strong opinion on that, and it's um, not necessarily one that's at all that's seen as at all acceptable today. 
<laughs> well, apart from it to him. And, well, I guess other people, someone, you know. Yeah, uh, I mean... I think we might have to edit a lot. I'll probably just edit all of this out. Really shouldn't say I don't know. I don't think you said anything bad. I don't think Dave would agree. He has got a strong opinion that is actually outside of, well, or on very much on one side. He knows everyone. Well, a lot of other people disagree with him, right? There we go. I mean, yeah. he's, not really, he's not really shy about his views, Dave Martell. So. No, no. So that happened at exactly the same time as these two volumes were released. So as a consequence, like the... Um, all the the public publicity and stuff was <laughs> uh, curtailed. It didn't happen. Mm. Um, I'm particularly interested in these, of course, because of the vertebrates, specifically the tetrapods, and specifically the ichthyosaur chapter, which uh, I co-authored with uh, Ben Moon, who's an ichthyosaur specialist. Um, we'll talk about that a bit more in a minute. I want to talk about the ichthyosaurs of the Kimridge clay on my mind today um and i just want to touch briefly on this book which uh, i have now finished and is due to be published in september this year it's going to be called dinopedia it's published by princeton university press i'm not super happy about the fact that it's called dinopedia because i have worked previously on a book with don lesson published by national geographic which is also called dinopedia but no no connection at all that's um, yeah that's a bit awkward isn't it yeah darren nash dinopedia two things will come up yeah it'll look like a reissuing of the same book oh well well the princeton university press one is part of a um a series of compact popular books here's fungipedia which is a really nice oh book. yeah i remember you yeah this. so it's yeah. in the style of that Okay. And so it's going to be round about 180-ish pages, uh, sort of fairly dense encyclopedia-style entries uh, with um, with about, I think, 50 pieces of art. I've done the art as well as done the text. I've done the cover art. Yeah. I've done the bookend artwork. Nice. So it's like, yeah. And um, as I say in the foreword to the book the book changed tack three times so if you've heard me talk about this book before which i have on the podcast and i also have on uh, you know twitter and stuff a lot of that those comments are now completely redundant because um my initial angle my initial take with the book was this isn't a book that's necessarily about dinosaurs instead it's about the um how our thinking about dinosaurs has been conveyed through popular culture. So it's like uh, the art of, for example, Charles Knight. Like, what? who was Charles Knight? What did he do? How has that affected our view, view on dinosaurs? Jurassic Park, how, how the portrayal, you know, there of... Uh, the portrayal there of dinosaurs, how has that affected popular thought? You know, the film Fantasia, how is that... You know, all these kind of things. It was going to be about the... Um, and, the, and the books of people like David Norman, um, Don Lessam, uh, David Lambert even. I had a whole section on David Lambert's books, uh, Collins' Guide to Dinosaurs and Dinosaur Data Book and so on. The Orbis Partwork. There was a section on the Orbis Partwork. Yeah, you, I don't know if you know it, John. It's that um, magazine for kids from the 90s called Dinosaurs, uh, um, which is you know, mm. very influential for people that are, you know, like, you know, in their 20s and 30s today um it was going to be all of that stuff 
but it ended up not being all of that stuff because um uh basically once I'd started writing about the dinosaurs themselves, you know, you can't mention a group of dinosaurs and then not have to obviously spend a couple of hundred words talking about them. Uh, it's like, yikes, there's way too much of that kind of material that doesn't leave room for that more that more popular side of things. And uh, I ended up like chopping a lot of it out and reverting it to something more about the dinosaurs themselves. And then I thought, now something I really, really like, and I've tried doing this before in my book, The Great Dinosaur Discoveries, which is the idea, I've probably made this analogy before, that science is like a gigantic castle made of Lego bricks, and that our knowledge accrues over time to the addition of small things, and that at various points in history, you're, let's say, imagine that one of the walls of the Lego castle is like half built. Well, you don't know it's half built when you're looking at it. it. Depends on where you are in history. So obviously your view of reality is contingent on what's known at the time. So in the 19 whatevers, the 1950s, let's say, it's perfectly normal to think that Tyrannosaurus was the ultimate final straight line descendant of Megalosaurus and Allosaurus. And the entire history of these dinosaurs was clearly towards them becoming the most destructive kind of big headed uber monster killers um that uh, just one particular you know random example um there's you know the view that that our knowledge has obviously changed over time as we've like learned more stuff and what did people actually think about the patterns um in dinosaur history how did they reflect that in like you know taxonomy and the particular evolutionary models they come up with all these different complicated models of uh, dinosaur history which to today we would mostly regard something as a bad idea not realizing that the views we hold are not always but often just as likely to be you know disproven or discredited you know down the line in the future and uh, and and some of these you know yeah you think of ever any evolutionary model we have for any group of animals that we today are like yeah that, that is the case it's really complicated how we got to where we are. Well, if there are abandoned models, it's like their backstory is horrendously complicated as well. Uh, for, for dinosaurs, um, one of my favorite examples is the dinosaur polyphyly model, where all the way up until the 80s, and it persists even beyond that because there's still this people that pushed it beyond that, but um, the idea that dinosaurs, the term dinosaur was just a term of, uh, of convenience and uh, it applied to actually disparate groups. Several, <laughs> we covered this before. We did a whole episode yeah. on dinosaur phylogenetic models off the back of this. So I'm repeating, I'm surely repeating myself here. But um, yeah, I, I think that stuff's really interesting. Like the fact that people in the past believed that they were right about something and today we know they're not. And about the fact that these models are really complicated and they're often quite different from what we think is correct today. The book was gonna be about that, but, the problem with that is it's really complicated. It's really complicated to discuss those things. And again, how can you do it without um, being super over the top in terms of like the jargon? And if you're saying that these days, <sighs> ceratosaurids and abelisaurids are regarded as uh, tetanurans, whereas under the old definition, uh, they were excluded from tetanuri because uh, they were included in a monophyletic ceratosauria. It's like you can say all that, and it's like, yeah, you know, if you know what those all, the, what all those words mean, fine. 
But if you don't, and for a popular book, you have to assume people don't, well, then you have to spend like a thousand words explaining what each of those terms means, tetanurans and ceratosaurids and ceratosaurians and blah, 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 blah. So uh, when the book went for review, the general thinking was that these discussions of changing evolutionary models are just too complex. It's just too many. As one reviewer put it, and I quite like this, they said it involves basically uh, keeping a lot of mental cards in your hand at once. Um, so, so I ended up abandoning that version of the book, <laughs> just tons of material excised and put to one side. And as I've said in the foreword, I, um, I think there's scope for a big, heavy technical book on changing models of evolution for dinosaurs. Like you think of how much has changed, um, even just within this century, let alone going back to, you know, the, 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 the rest of the, the, well, going back to the 20th century and before, um, loads of new stuff. So Yeah, uh, and it's really, it's pretty interesting because you get, uh, especially with dinosaurs, you get the sort of dinosaur I'm thinking about the later part of the 20th century, you get the dinosaur renaissance, and we probably covered some of this, but you also get cladistics coming in, not at exactly the same time. So you get this sort of weird juddery sort of, um, yeah, dinosaurs are monophyletic because of this trait or whatever. And then the cladists coming in and saying, well, we don't really care about individual traits. Um, but yes, dinosaurs are monophyletic anyway. Um, but yeah, you get sort of interesting interplay between let's let's take another look at dinosaurs. Um, or let's look at dinosaurs in a new way, sort of chuck out a lot of old ideas. But and then you get another method, a different methodology come through. Yeah. Mm. Kind of I'd, I'd like I'd like to see some more exploration of that. And I've got a, I've got a feeling we trod over this before. It was like four, three or four or five episodes back, but yeah. um the the, the so-called cladistic revolution or the the revolution in phylogenetic systematics or Hennigian systematics, whatever you want to call it, that is, I believe, started in the 70s and then it's mostly like an early to mid 80s event, I think, when it's becoming like more widespread across the whole of biology. Yes, um, I had a book. I've got one over. I've got one right here. It's uh... um, the systematics of dinosaurs. Um, which is that, that yellow book? Yeah, dinosaur, dinosaur systematics. Dinosaur systematics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's down the other end. That of the gives office. the impression that cladistics certainly wasn't really very accepted, even in the late eighties. I think the nineties it became like this is what we're doing. Um, well, well, well. Let me... I, it was definitely on everyone's radar in the eighties, right? Yeah. There was still a lot of people going, no, we don't like it. Yeah, um, I think that's true. Where I'm going with this is though that um, that. <laughs> The cladistics as a sidetrack. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, cladistics <laughs> as as a as a thing as a as a whole. I I think I'm remembering because bear in mind, you know, Hennig, his work is on insects. I think flies, um, and it's becoming like more widely known across. Like you know, we should, we should apply this to other groups of organisms. That is early to mid '80s, and then early to mid 80s mid 80s and in particular 1986 is also the time at which like it's like five or six different studies are published or presented at conferences on the evolution of dinosaurs and they all use phylogenetic systematics paul sereno publishes in 
that National Geographic, uh, uh, I can't remember the name of the journal, but he publishes like a phylogeny of Ornithischia. And then there's also, I think in 1986, there's a meeting uh it's there's this meeting devoted to mesozoic terrestrial ecosystems and greg paul david norman and andrew milner paul serino and one or two other people whose names i've forgotten at the same meeting they all give new uh like they all present cladograms on dinosaur phylogeny which basically is them applying Henigian phylogenetic systematics of dinosaurs so what i'm getting at there and what i'm sort of like open-endedly asking is is it a coincidence is it a coincidence that there's this new interest in actually using rigorously defined specific traits to you know compile a model of dinosaur evolution is it a coincidence that's happening at the same time as the phylogenetic systematics movement or were they all aware of the existing work that had just been published uh, on other groups and then thought oh that should be applied to dinosaurs and i kind of think it's the latter because i think the argument is that in vertebrates colin patterson based at the natural History museum in london he had taken uh, he had applied henigian systematics to fishes in particular to actinopterygians raping bony fishes and at the amnh in new york eugene gaffney had applied it to turtles and I think that bony fishes and turtles were the springboard for vertebrate for the rest of vertebrates. For that, that's why um, dinosaur workers started thinking, "Oh, we should uh, do this with uh, dinosaurs." Um, and 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 the fact that it's so the fact that that happens at the same time as Backer and Galton's uh, is that nineteen? Oh no, when's that? Backer and Galton's argument for dinosaur monopoly. Is I think is seventy four. Yeah, I think yeah. that's seventy four actually. So no, that's that's already happened. So that no. So forget that. I was going to say that's happening at the same time. It's not. I think that's a separate event. But, um, yeah, that's what I was saying. So I think that sort of stuff came in earlier, and then you had another sort of you had the what perspective revolution of we should take another look at dinosaurs, maybe yeah. what we call the beginning of the dinosaur renaissance, and then you get another um, sort of wave of well, here's a methodology to do it. But it, it's separated by, I think, about 10 years. Right. So the whole reason we're talking about this, and again, apologies, we've covered this before, is, uh, yeah, I, I, I ended up taking all of that kind of content out of Dinopedia. And in the end, it is just a general, like, uh, popular encyclopedia on dinosaurs, which... Uh, it's, it's well, yeah, I mean, it, judging from the size of the book and like the other books, right, that sort of seems like it's in keeping, doesn't it? That's... It should be okay. Yeah, I hope people like it. Um, it's a yeah. weird, hey, you know what, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to find the contents list and uh, <laughs> uh, just to... Just to give you like a um, um, list, uh, an idea of like what the what the entries entail. Tell me if you like this or not. Right? Okay, it's only seventy-five entries. 
a belly sauroids, a belly sauroids, allosauroids, all yesterdays, alvarezsaurs, ankylosaurs, archaeopteryx, Robert Backer, birds, birds are not dinosaurs, birds come first, bone wars, brachiosaurids, brontosaurus, carcharodontosaurs, ceratopsi and ceratopsids, ceratosaurs, celerosaurs, crystal palace, dinonychus, dinosaur renaissance, dinosauroid, diplodosoids, Hadrosaur nesting colonies, hadrosaurs, Hell Creek, Ararosaurs, Heterodontosaurids, Jack Horner, Iguanodon, Jurassic Park, KPG event, Lioning Province, Macronarians, Manoraptorans, Marginocephalians, Megalosauroids, Megaraptorans, Morrison Formation, Nanotyrannus, Ornithischians, Ornithomimosaurs, Ornithopods, Ornithoskeleta, Housegolds, Mosca, John Ostrom, Oviraptorosaurs, Rincon, no, Richard Owen, Pachycephalosaurs, Greg Paul, Phytodinosauria, Pneumatisti, Prosauropods, Raptor Prairie, Drain Raptodontomorphs, Ceriscians, Sauropodomorphs, Sauropods, Scansoropterygids, Pulserino, Spinosaurus, Stegosaurus, Sue, Tendaguru, Tetnurans, Titanosaurs, Therizinosaurus, Theropods, Thyrophorans, Turiosaurus, Tyrannosaurus, Tyrannosaurus, Rex, Wheel, and Zalanger, Mural, Zigong, Dinosaur Museum. So that's perfect. So there you go. So perfect. It's the best book ever. Um, no, that is good. I yeah, uh, obviously, yeah. I was expecting more um, like taxonomic groups there. So yeah, I think that's good. That's got a whole heap of stuff which isn't which aren't taxonomic groups, um, which I think is a useful thing to have. I you, obviously this is aimed at non-experts, right? So I think it'd be a to have some sort of yeah overview of some of the important discussions in dinosaur paleontology like that which aren't just here's the groups of dinosaurs is really yeah i think that's good all right we move on we move uh, on always forward always like shark a lot of sharks a lot of sharks can actually just like sit still on the sure nerd sure <laughs> Uh, John, 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 John. What do you think of the proto-Pycnosians? Well, I think they should keep their fingers out of there. Do you know what the proto-Pycnosians are? <laughs> no, I'm looking them up. Um, it's a, uh, a newly named group of Triassic stem archosaurs, which uh, now it's a bit of a cheat when you name. I always feel it's a little bit cheaty when people name a whole new they come up with like some grand new name that sounds protopycnosia it sounds like it's a name way above the air quotes family level it sounds like it's some vast clade of hundreds of species and it's got two constituent <laughs> members of just uh they sterling nesbitt and colleagues have um named this new clade for these uh reptiles which as i say they're stem archosaurs they're not archosaurs but they're they're in that same ballpark as like for those of you who know Mesozoic fossil reptiles, Rhynchosaurs, Trilophosaurs, Protorosaurs, um, a group of a group of um, reptiles that they're not archosaurs, so they're outside the clock croc bird clade. They kind of really superficially look like big semi-erect lizardy shaped animals, but often with unusual head shapes and unusual teeth and so on. Uh, Rhynchosaurs obviously got giant beaks. Trilophosaurs have got broad, widened teeth and like a sort of beak-like snout, protorosaurs tend to have long necks, uh, Tanistrophius obviously being extreme. There's weirdos in there like Longisquama and Charavipteryx. Um, and these uh, proto-Pycnosians, 
I really struggle to remember the name. I always want to call it something else. Uh, have I said it right? Protopycnosy. Uh, yes, I have. Um, they're basically known from um, their domed skulls. From not the whole skull, though, just the dome bit, because the rest is lost. So there's one called Trioptocus from the um, something like the I'm trying to remember the I'm trying to remember like all the names of the formations and stuff as if I should just know that. Stuff. Otis Chalk? Yeah, the Otis Chalk of Texas. Trioptocus primus was named in 2016. So just imagine this like chunk of like round bone it looks like a sort of like uncut loaf of bread. It's about like, I don't know, 10 centimeters long. And then the, the new one, which was named this year, is called Cranosaura cutii. Uh, that's the new one that uh, Sterling Nesbitt and colleagues just named. And it's from um, the Triassic of India. Um, and yeah, they're saying, wow, you know, like new clade of... Uh, uh, like stem archosaurs, um, if they're present in what's now the USA and what's now India, then presumably they had like a Pangean, you know, very wide distribution. There's presumably other members of this group yet to come. But what did the whole animal look like if you've only yeah. got this like skull dome thing? And um, that's obviously the thing that we really don't know at this stage. <laughs> so uh, I, I tweeted a thread about this because. I feel like some kind of like remote connection to these specimens because I saw them in uh, person way, way, way back in the distant depths of time back in 1999 at a conference in Denver when uh, famed um, uh, Texan but Indian by birth paleontologist Sankar Chatterjee uh, paleontologist had them uh, in his possession and was showing them around and it's like these look like these look like pachycephalosaur domes but they're from the triassic so what kind of animal is this and of course this is a nice illustration of how long things take it's taken them you know basically 20 years to get around to uh describing these and analyzing them um <laughs> yes yeah that's the way that's the way it goes uh Joshua Knipper has uh, produced, um, he, he may have done more artwork, but I, I saw when these, when um, Cranosaurus was brand new, he's uh, done a whole load of possible alternative looks for the head of this animal, ranging from, imagine the, imagine, well, imagine like a, a human-like head, but just with like a sort of like bigger, more bulbous thing, and like a flat face. That he's done things like that all the way up to things that look like an iguana but just with a dome stuck at the back um so you know and and those are all equally possible at the moment if the skull dome is like eight or nine centimeters long then presumably the whole animal is like you know a meter ish it's not a huge animal probably proportioned you know based on other uh stem oxals uh it's probably you know proportioned vaguely like a monitor lizard but um yeah, protopycnosians, another group of weird um, Triassic reptiles. There's a there's 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 these couple of montages that I've done one. Gabriela Guido has done one. These these montages, I'm sure, I'm sure other people have as well. But you know where you see all the Triassic groups. You got your Tanistrophius in there, and a Rhynchosaur, and like a Trilophosaur, and Pteroterpeton, which is another strange thing, and. Um, Longisquama, etc. So these protopycnosians, it's presumably it's like a solid bone, right? Or pretty much. It's like it's like all the bones that we say are solid. 
yeah which is which is they're not solid at all because they're yeah. full of blood vessels and stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's really dense bone yes yeah. it's a lump of bone it's not hollow and yeah correct oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah so Lots so mysteries huh yeah so you know at this stage of the game precisely zero is known about their biology and behavior but presumably this was like used in head shoving matches or head you know bashing that sort of thing so yeah i mean obviously looking at pictures they do the sort of they do look a lot like pachycephalus sort of similarity to pachycephalosaurs a sort of high dome yeah Is, are there any living analogs to this well not really people tend to think of you know like bovids like you know mountain sheep whatnot yeah. but they uh, tend to have sort of flatter Heads. Yeah, they're, yeah, their their frontal region is actually totally flat. Think of like yeah. I don't know, mouflon or dull sheep or bighorn sheep. Yeah, and obviously it's in their remarkable horns. The by the way, the mass of the horns in an animal like a bighorn sheep with the keratin on—that's a caveat. With the keratin on, is greater than the mass of the rest of the skeleton. <laughs> so, uh, uh, huge investment in those organs. But in terms of like animals that just have like a big old rounded skull dome. No, um, you've got like iguanas, like uh, uh, marine iguanas and Galapagos land iguanas that have got relatively short, like, I don't know, relatively robust skulls and that, that do that do like frontal frontal shoving, but that's mostly with the nasals rather than with everything, anything above the brain case. So it's protopycnosians, tapinocephalids, uh, cyanodons, like moss chops, uh, they appear to have like they had slightly domed skulls. A bunch of um, stem mammal lineages that did. Yeah. Pachycephalosaurs, of course. Um, some ankylosaurs have got a slightly domed skull, and Jim Kirkland has suggested they may have been head bashing or head shoving. Uh, they're not as solid or as thick though as like pachycephalosaurs or protopycnosians. But you've got to start somewhere, right? True. And then finally, calicothers. Uh, you know, Calicothers, these famous like like claw-handed perissodactyls. Mm. Um, there's one subgroup of those, the Skyzotherians, I think, that have got um massive domed skull roof, but I think it's hollow rather than solid. I think oh. I think they're I think they're hollow, but the general thinking is still that they used it in, you know, combat, yeah, smash, smashing heads together. Just it does seem uh, it does seem like quite a mystery to me. I don't because yeah, there's obvious sort of intuitive feel of bashing heads and that sort of thing, but it does seem a little odd that the animals that bash heads today have flat heads and for obvious reasons. Um, yeah, I've I've forgotten that there are of course some birds with a massively domed, um, like inflated skull roofs. There's, yeah. a, there's a couple of megapodes. I think the, there's one called the Malio that has it. There's a couple of curacaos, South American curacaos that have got um, big domes. But again, they are totally hollow. They're sheathed in keratin. They're brightly coloured and they're not used in physical combat. They're for, they're for like looking sexy. Mm. Um, they don't fight with them. I, I always worry with these things that look like they've got a function like that, that they might have secondary functions to do with, I don't know, some sort of biochemical thing, you know? 
I don't understand this stuff well enough, which is why I always like, is there something we're not considering here that animals need to stockpile something and they're just putting it on their head because they also want to display structure there. You know, there's something else going on and they're not yeah. actually bashing anything or doing anything like yeah. that. They're just, yeah. they just need a mass of bones somewhere. Well, on your we, head seems like a stupid idea, but yeah, we you know, know, if you're showing off, then, yeah, you know, a sexual selection going on there as well. But yeah, yeah. there are, you know, animals need like, calcium reservoirs and stuff sometimes for certain yeah. things but but that's the sort of thing that you would do like on all that stupid needless space you've got on the insides of your uh, like long bones in your medullary cavity um rather than again put it out on the head where it's where it's presumably got a great cost in terms of making you possibly slower possibly more less good at clambering through vegetation and hiding and stuff yeah so in in that case it does read like something that's got that's associated with sexual selection because it's got a heavy like a handicap attached to it right if you've got a big heavy dome on your although that that was another theory wasn't it bashing through vegetation i quite like that it's been stupidly suggested for uh, yeah, Lambiosaurus, Parasaurolopus in particular. No, the animal no, no. would Pachycephalosaurus, man. It's just head down and barrel on through. Um, I haven't heard that for Pachycephalosaurus. Haven't you? No. I swear I read that about Pachycephalosaurus. It would have. Okay. Well, in, you know. In uh, in so one of the most famous dinosaur books of all time, the Normanpedia. David Norman's Illustrating Subpedia Dinosaurs, published in 1986, famously illustrated by John Civic, in the one of the hadrosaur sections, it says that it is. Now, these are the different ideas put forwards for the hollow crests of these, you know, Lambiosaurian hadrosaurs. Mm. But here's a new idea. What about Dr. Andrew Milner has said that that isn't it funny that the you know that the, there's there's three or four species of Parasaurolophus and Walkeri and Tubican have got these really long crests. Certocristatus is the one with the short curved crest. But for there's you know there's this one famous specimen of Parasaurolophus, I think, walker eye, where it's got like this notch at the base of the neck. Yep. And Andrew Milner has noticed that if the animal is to like sort of you know, like put <laughs> yeah. the, put the <laughs> crest, it fits perfectly in that notch. And if the animal were coincidence, to... <laughs> <laughs> if it were to if it were to leg it like jiggery at a thousand miles an hour through a forest, then the foliage would just be deflected, you know, branches just be flying out the way. And it's like that's a okay. Isn't, isn't it more likely that that notch is some hideous pathology and the most recent study of it published last year uh, concludes that yes indeed it's, it's pathological some strange pathology but I remember at the time thinking where did and where did Dr Andrew Milner pub who, who, who those of you who don't know well-known expert on temnospondyls and other ancient amphibians where did andrew milner publish this he didn't ever publish it at all he either said it in the pub or he gave like an <laughs> informal svpca like talk back in back in the days when you could just stand up at a conference i've got a new idea everyone listen to this <laughs> today today you've got to have some science and some rigor and some you know oh it passes some but that's what you say in the pub now or in a podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah I remember thinking as a, as a kid reading that 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 bit in the book and thinking, but wouldn't like I'm pretty sure that if you just hit a heavy branch when you're running at 30 miles an hour through a forest, <laughs> that's like a lot of blood and a lot of damaged head crests. Uh, but <laughs> it's in there. Um, but See, that's not where I got it because I never owned that. Grabs heart, staggers backwards in surprise. How did you not? When did you first see the illustrated site being danced by David Norman? I'm not entirely sure I've ever seen it. 
mean, I've seen cut like the cover or whatever. And I probably, I think Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs did a write up on it at some point. No. First edition? Yeah. Second edition? Yeah. So I've got the Illustrated Encyclopedia of Pterosaurs. Yeah. Which uh, there are, there's a, an imprint of the dinosaur one that's combined with the pterosaur one into one single volume because <laughs> the pterosaur one was a commercial disaster. They did was anything. It? Yeah. Yep, they did absolutely anything to get rid of it. Um, they remained in it, like on its second edition. And um, so if you don't own the... F this is very... It's going to sound very snobbish of me, but people that own the first edition, which I do, I don't have it to hand, That those are the people that, that heard about it and went to some trouble to get it. And people that have got the second edition, they just bumped into it in, like, some cheap knockoff crappy bookshop and bought it cheap. Which one are you talking about? The... Um... Pterosaurs or the the pterosaurs. The first edition right. has got uh, has got a cover like this. It's like a it's got little silhouettes in the background. Yeah, and it's got this montage of um, skeletal uh, photos of skeletons together with them. Um, Civic uh, life reconstructions. This is always a great part of the podcast, isn't it? Darren John, and John finds get, a book. Yeah, Darren and John find books from their bookshelves. I can't see my pterosaur encyclopedia. It doesn't have a cover anymore. It doesn't really have a spine anymore. I'm completely. <laughs> The second edition has got a, a a pteranodon puking some fish out for its babies. Yeah, I definitely I have the first edition. Well, there you go. So you are, your your cred is intact. You're an actual true <laughs> true pterosaur expert. Oh, I've got lots of books with no spines. Here it is. Look, there it is. Uh huh. Right. Tape. Well, wow. It's a, how it's can a you well tell used. on how can you tell on the inside? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, you have to go to the uh, the publication data and see if it says first or second. Um, when are these things from? So this is 1991. Yeah. When is the encyclopedia the Norman Norman? Is it the Normanpedia? Is that yeah, what people the, call it? When's yeah. that from? Uh, I said 86. I'm wrong. It's 85. I was probably just a bit too young, and maybe it wasn't. Didn't they didn't wasn't well, available in Australia. When I was I, about twelve, which is when I started buying dinosaur books, it's it's quite possible that it uh, it's possible that it that it went to the colonies late, but it's also possible not. I mean, it's by Salamander; they're pretty like global. Yeah, I company. think it's more. I think it's more likely that it, it was no longer available rather than. Yeah. Well, my I, I've written about this and probably covered it on the podcast before. So again, excuse me, indulge me on this, but my history with books is always quite odd because um, my abiding memory from younger life is hearing about a book but have never seeing it and never having any way of getting it yeah and and often of not actually knowing about a book until it um appeared in my local library by <laughs> just by fluke so remarkably the first edition uh, the uh, original Illustrating Encyclopedia of Dinosaurs. Um, I learned about that just because my local library in Bitten, Southampton, just had it. And I was like, oh my God, this is like the best book ever. Um, this was, of course, before I knew that John Civic's Dinosaur Reconstructions were so strangely outdated, even for 1985. But um, yeah, that was it was like my Bible. But, but, but um, only a library copy. I didn't own it. And it's only, you know, in adult life that I've obtained it, which is the case for virtually every book I own. I've only obtained them as an adult, having never been able to get them as a as a kid. So I have um, 
Yeah. Yeah. Great uh, jealousy of people that like were surrounded by these books. But how many people really were? I mean, I had a, I had a selection, but obviously there were lots of books I couldn't get, couldn't find. Could go to the local library and photocopy them if you really were desperate. Well, but lots of them didn't think, even make it. They just like never yeah. even heard of them. It's often books that are like the seminal books of the field. I mean, like it would be really odd to grow up in the nineties or two thousands and not be aware of the Illustrated Encyclopedia Dinosaurs by David Norman. Um, and not ever see it like that that would be odd well that's uh, me because i wasn't ever very interested in um in john civic's work because i was aware from the start that it was kind of outdated um and i i had a david norman book already dave norman's dinosaur the one from the tv show yeah Oh, I've got that here. You mean dinosaur exclamation mark? Yes, that's why I said dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which uh, again, a, a civic on the cover. Us, this weird Deinonychus picture. Mine's it in, is. Mine, mine's in really good condition. It is. You haven't really used that. Oh, mine's still in. <laughs> mine's in Australia, but it has mm. some. It has like lots of artwork in it. It's got some good Greg Paul stuff that I've never seen before. That's so funny because I actually really disliked this book, and uh, and I bought it. Uh, I, I think by this time I was aware of pieces like that one, which is in there. Yeah, that was the first think, time I'd ever seen that. I think that was the first time that was published. I could be wrong, but we should describe that to people who a <laughs> good podcast. The... Reminisce about books. Is it Omasaurus or Eulopus? It's Omasaurus. Yeah, so it's a it's a Greg Paul scene of a group of these very 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 long necked sauropods uh, in a in a forest with like shafts of really bright sunlight coming through and you can't see the sun um those of you who know greg paul artwork will know the picture we're talking about it's possible i was inspired to buy the book because of that piece but it was mostly these these pictures which i really liked mm -hmm. and uh, i still don't know the name of the artist but um are they not credited they are, but I just can't remember it. Yeah, okay. I'll, yeah. I'll find their name now. But um, so there's two pages in a chapter called Late News from the Mesozoic. And I still don't know why the chapter's called that because it's about the um, it's about like the rise to success of dinosaurs. It's about like, you know, why dinosaurs are different from other archosaurs and other reptiles. And it's got two pages that um, show uh, the non-dinosaurian groups that were de rigueur during the triassic so it's got like an assortment of um uh, synapsids a rhynchosaur uh and a couple of a couple of rausukians and i eat a sort of very slender looking pterosaur that i think is eudomorphodon um and i was interested in that because even at you know at that time i was interested in the idea that you know you know a lot of these animals should look very gracile and leggy mm. and um that's that's clearly the case in that piece of art so uh, i think the um the artwork in that book was surprisingly good there's Modern. a lot of good stuff in it yeah i mean it's 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 a bit of a grab bag so there's it's very variable but there's a lot of good stuff in it it's got these weird pictures of this dinosauroid model that were made for the tv show <laughs> yeah and uh, and i've learned in recent years 
that the models that this the, the it's not a model is it's not models it's, sorry, a suit. it's a single suit and um, and it was made by peter minister who i worked with quite a lot on um for doyling kindersley he's one of these people who does these you know these cg dinosaurs that you see everywhere and uh, the suit was made for emma norman and um I'm still not entirely sure. I, I need to check this if that Emma Norman is in, is any relation to David Norman, who was the you know consultant and um, uh, writer for the series and the writer of the book. So I've said before on this, and it may be well known now that that writing books is basically is basically a, in my experience, I, I know I'm an idiot and I've done it wrong, but, but writing books is basically a mugs game. It's like you think, oh yeah, I'll do this book and I'll be a good wage for a year. It's like it's not it's like what it's what anyone else in any proper job earns in like you know two weeks or something it's um in order to make a living out of writing sciencey books you have to do like 10 a year and even then you, you probably wouldn't wouldn't be okay financially uh writing a book is like payment can be like a couple of thousand pounds which is not okay having said that doing books that accompany tv series can be so i'm told a super sweet deal and like if you play your cards right maybe you have to be david attenborough or something but apparently they can do really really well and it's definitely a thing you should um it's just a lot more money going into television stuff as well and they see the book as part of the advertising budget probably right so they're willing to sink more money into it the natural history museum book i did i'm not gonna say anything particularly negative here but when i um did that dinosaur book i thought Ah, oh, finally, <laughs> like a, a good annual wage from a book. No, <laughs> no, no. You would have to do a book a month, a book a month to be on a wage that's like livable. <laughs> not even um, average, not even average in terms of like what we're told. Well, we're told that it's way, way, way more than virtually everything I've ever, you know, done. Oh, yeah, but, like, yeah. I mean, it's it's such a sort of fascinating thing, isn't it? When you dealing with anything where the person that produces the actual thing gets no money because, well, we had all we have all these costs. We have editors. We have the printing. We have this. We have that. And there's just no money left to pay you to <laughs> to you know actually make the thing. I mean, it's really common, isn't it? It's, it's the same thing. It is artwork. It's just it's um. It's really pretty funny sort of backwards approach to things, in my opinion, but there you go. Well, yeah, like, oh, let's not, let's not, yeah, I, I, okay, let's stop Yeah, there. yeah, well, winch, <laughs> winch. Winch. Okay. Well, it's, it's, stuff, it's also stuff that's really difficult to air in public, not yeah. only because it, like, always feels weird and windy, but also because it, it, it always involves revealing stuff that you don't feel right in revealing, because it's, uh, like, like, okay, really interesting thing generally people are embarrassed is maybe too strong a word but generally people don't like admitting that they that they are not doing okay or they aren't earning much or they're doing something they're in a they're in a line of work that just results in like you're going to be living in poverty forever um that is that is the case for uh, you know a lot of people involved in the sciences in arts in writing in anything anyone actually wants to do yeah no, that's uh, quite true but yeah. partly why you get big wages for some jobs is because 
you have to bribe people to do them because right? <laughs> that's the only that's the deal that's the bribe yeah. we should move on because we we've should... been we've been going for an hour now and we haven't oh. even got out of news from the world of news all right yeah okay let, let me just one last newsy thing and that's this new living whale so a new whale. living species of whale has been named and it's the first like whale endemic to the coasts of the uh, americas no of north america i think yeah, they've called it rice's whale it's endemic to the gulf of mexico it's super rare there's like less than 100 individuals i think they reckon that there's less than like 20 breeding age individuals so this is this animal's in trouble it's not widely known unless you're like a, a sort of whale specialist or uber nerd that the number of species of rorquals that's the group of baleen whales that includes blue whale fin whale say well it's not widely known that there's a bunch of species, a bunch of populations there where views on how many species they represent have fluctuated a lot among researchers. Certainly in the time I've been like following this, so, you know, from the 70s, 80s, um, from the literature, I wasn't following things in the 70s, given that's when I was born. But um, uh, there's the amount of uncertainty about how many species there are here. The, the books that I mostly paid attention to when I was younger, they put all of them into one species, Brooder's Whale. It's spelt brides, but it's pronounced bruder after a, a Scandinavian. Uh, I don't know what I don't know what that person was. P probably someone who invented a harpoon to kill him or something. But that's as is normal with the whales. Um, and then it turns out that it's it's a mostly like pan tropical, mid sized, rockwall. Then there's several different populations and and people started saying I, again. I'm thinking 60s, 70s, 80s. I said like that. There's several subspecies here, and in actual fact, some of the subspecies are different enough to be species. So you'll find some people saying there's Bruder's whale and there's Eden's whale. And then it turns out that the that some populations of this complex warrant separation as something else. Like there's a there's a Western Pacific one, which is now Omura's whale, like discovered in Japan. And this animal in the Gulf of Mexico, Rice's whale, is another member of that complex. So they actually discovered, they, a team of researchers, discovered in roundabout, I think, 2014, that these animals are genetically distinct. As always, there's the debate of, you know, who, who knows what a species is, but the idea is they're, air quotes, distinct enough to be recognised as a species, given that their Speciometer went off. Yeah, given that they're as different from other populations recognised as species that they should be recognized as another species. So this Gulf of Mexico population is as distinct from the main population of Bruder's whale, as is, say, the population that's mostly regarded as like Eden's whale. So therefore, you know, you can you can you can tell them apart. They look different. Genetically, they're different. So um, yeah, uh, Patricia Roselle and colleagues in marine mammal science, uh, they I haven't got the paper, I've only got the abstract, but it doesn't appear that it's, um, you know, there's an existing name for this population, which is odd because there often is for all the whale populations of the world. Um, Balanoptera ricei, a new whale for 2021. Uh, and it, people were, you know, so then, right, one final thing on this. A new whale is named. It's the sort of thing, we've covered this before, people like cryptozoologists jump all over and say, oh my God, you can find a new whale in 2021. <laughs> what else is there to find? They found a new whale. And then the pushback is, well, wait a second. 
that they've recognized this as a new taxonomic entity but in terms of like it has not been discovered at all i mean you know people have actually known about these whales for as long as there have been people recording whales from that part of the world they've filmed them on hundreds of occasions yes you know as long as people have been filming whales in the gulf of mexico they've been killing them which is why there's less than 100 of them so um it's probably not right to use there's some cases where it is right i think the mega mouse shark is an example there's some cases where it is right to say wow this is like significant even though 1976 for the mega mouse shark is now a long time ago but for an animal like this it's not right to use this as a like a um gee whiz they're still finding new whales it's like well they're not really <laughs> they just decided to recognize it as a new nameable population yeah yeah i mean i think if it's <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah we've split this group of whales that we knew about off into a new species it's not it's not the same yeah. thing at all it's cool it's cool but it's not it ain't no sea big sea bigfoot is basically what <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. We should do an episode on whales, actually. We don't really cover that stuff very much. And uh, I'd love to do that. I'm a big fan I of whales. I have questions about whales. Because I don't really that? read about them very much. So see that's see that sperm whale behind me? Yeah, I do see the sperm yeah. whale. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah. yeah, marine mammals are one of my first loves. Marine reptiles and marine mammals were what I was really, really into before I really got into yeah, academically into dinosaurs. Um, yep. and marine reptiles well that segs us very nicely into the uh the next uh, section of the show <laughs> the, yeah so off the back of the kimbridge clay thing kimbridge clay books and i said that myself and muno ben moon we've done the um uh ichthyosaur chapter in that <laughs> as i'll say attention zoology right the article was submitted in 2014 and it's published late last year <laughs> so it's completely useless because it's like everything in it is redundant all the decisions about the taxonomy have changed um and i'll get to that in a little bit more detail in a second but the i don't i don't, I don't want to be too mean to the editors because this is a, another dave martell story but the editors, and I think one of the editors in particular, they tried to uh, minimise or negate this like long, long, long degree, uh, long period of the manuscript being, uh, you know, impressed and made increasingly redundant by inserting new like little lines to sort of like try and, you know, bring it up to date. And as a consequence, I find this really, really annoying. As a consequence, we'll say, we say on one page, this ichthyosaur is only known from a single specimen and it needs new study, is in desperate need of further study. And then on the next page, we'll say, of course, authors X and Y have just published a massive analysis of this and it's now known from 3,000 specimens. And it's like, you can't have both in the same manuscript. Exactly. <laughs> you just made us <laughs> like idiots. Um, and the 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 more recent thing is that obviously the, you know, it's accounting for a study that was published, you know, 2020 or something. I really wish they hadn't done that. Yeah. Um, you need a you need an author's bill of rights the right to speedy publication this is this is always the problem with multi-author works is the the volumes move at the speed of the slowest person so if you're you know conscientious and 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 you know really engaged and lucky enough to put the time into it you know you get your thing in there within the first couple of months but then you've got other people that delay it by literally years. And that's what happened here. 
So yeah, I don't I don't want to cast too many nasturtiums here, but <laughs> like if you're organising one of these things, just set a deadline and cut people loose if they don't make it. I mean, yeah. it's the only way you can't let these things drag on for years because the papers do become, as you say, useless. <laughs> ours is ours is completely redundant. Um, my thinking on this was that. Uh, so when we started this, started in, I think, 2011. <laughs> well, oh my God. Yeah, it was 2011. When we first did our review manuscript, it was like the ichthyosaurs of the Cambridge Clay really need fundamental revision. So here's what we'll do. In this, this is the initial, this is the start of a project. It was meant to be the start of a project. We'll say what the problems are, what the key tax are, where the areas of um, concern are. Stage one. Stage two is some of those uh taxa were named like in victorian times and they need a modern redescription so get those sorted just get them properly on record that's stage two and then stage three is there's loads of new stuff that's been found since the victorian era new species that need new analysis so stage three is the final stage of the project but what's actually happened is that stage one our initial review has been published after all that other work's been done stages two and three have both been published before stage one so stage one the one that says this needs to be done is now yeah that's all been done in the past there's new tax that have been named there are major new analyses that have been done the two gigantic monographs on <laughs> on the animals uh, appeared in uh, 2016 and 2018 i think um, and our, and all of the decisions about the taxonomy that we opted to go with are now redundant. So the Kimridge clay has basically got four ichthyosaurs. Uh, it's got like a hundred bits and pieces that are historically said to be from Ophthalmosaurus arsenicus, which is was named from the older Oxford clay formation. So people have generally been happy to see Ophthalmosaurus-like bones in the Kimridge clay and say that they are referable to this older species, Ophthalmosaurus arsenicus, which is from this, from this older unit. So you got that. And what we said in the initial review is that Ophthalmosaurus, many of you know it, you know, famously big-eyed, deep-diving, um, it's a very streamlined ichthyosaur, featured in walking with dinosaurs. Um, it's one of these classic cases of what's called taxonomic uh, redundancy, where animals that are named early in history of science are quite naturally assumed to be, you know, if you if you know of one ichthyosaur species from England and you're in Australia and you find the nicotisaur and it looks a bit like the one from England it's quite reasonable to say I think it's I found up Thamosaurus Icenicus in the middle of the outback yeah and then as a hundred years go by and you find a hundred new species which different you know subtle little details it turns out that oh your initial concept of the taxon was just you know um you hadn't recognized that in actual fact all of these things discovered afterwards are not referable to the original version and the i'm describing this really badly it's happened it's famously happened with oh, dinosaurs like yeah i don't think so yeah, that, yeah okay, exactly yeah. when you discover two things which uh two specimens of something which are completely different to everything else then you might think they're one species whereas really they're they could be 
not very closely related at all. There's hundreds of intervening taxa and species. So yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, it happens so, all the time. You know, you find the first sauropod, and it's a sauropod. <laughs> Cetiosaurus. Yeah, everything Cetiosaurus, right? Um, yeah, probably a so bad I think, example, but yeah, that's an, that's a good example because Cetiosaurus was, you know, regarded as you know all Jurassic and Cretaceous things from everywhere were called Cetiosaurus before uh, things became more complex. But um, with Ophthalmosaurus, people found these Ophthalmosaurus-like bones everywhere, and they called them all Ophthalmosaurus. Then it turns out that let's say you're basing it on the look of the scapula, it turns out that an Ophthalmosaurus-like scapula is now known from like 15 different op ophthalmosaurid taxa so you don't so you so now you look with look at it with modern eyes it's like well we don't know that it's ophthalmosaurus it might be it might be but there's no reason to necessarily think it is so that's what we said in the review it's like there's all these things in the Kimmeridge clay that's supposed to be ophthalmosaurus and specifically ophthalmosaurus icenicus and um, we really should be skeptical about this we don't know that they are in the meantime Moon and Curtin did publish this big Palsock monograph on Ophthalmosaurus, mostly about the Oxford clay material. And they have just like blindly labeled all the Kimmeridge clay things as if they are Ophthalmosaurus arsenicus. And uh, so that is inconsistent with what we've got in the um, review. So, that, so that's a, a thing that still needs resolving. Secondly, there's this really cool lick you saw from the Kimmeridge clay described in um 1871-ish called Nanopterygius yeah it is 1871 and then it's given a genus name Nanopterygius in 1922 by Friedrich von Hörner and you know that the Natural History Museum in London has got that beautiful fantastic wall of marine reptiles Yep. There's there's a bunch of them <laughs> that are like like three and a half meters off the ground near the ceiling, and sort of impossible to get to. And the holotype <laughs> Nanopterygius is one of those. So it's like yeah yeah <laughs> uh, binoculars out or whatever. Um, so it's kind of been really difficult to uh, like get to know about it because because of, of its like physical you know the actual physical um, proximity mm. of it. It's, it's inaccessible. And it's seemingly super rare. There's that the holotype is like the better part of a animal. It's like, I know 70% complete, it's pretty good. Then there's two or three other specimens that might be others of the same taxon, the same species, Nanopterygius entheciodon, I think it is. Then there's two from the Solnhofen limestone, Germany might be more specimens of Nanopterygius. And then the actual anatomy of this animal is odd. It uh, looks like, from that holotype, it looks like it's got a very long tail and it looks like it's got really little, tiny little flippers. So the few artistic reconstructions that have been done of it, I'm trying to find one in a book, which it's not, it's not within reach, but um, it's a weird looking ichthyosaur. So, it's super rare. It's hard to examine. It seems morphologically really strange. Um, and it's also, you know, add all these things together, it's also been difficult to pin down exactly what kind of ichthyosaur it is. Is it a member of the ophthalmosaurid group? Is it something totally different? So when we did our review, like I say, submitted in 2014, published 2020, that's what we say. We say, Menopterygius, 
what the hell's going on? It's so weird. I can't figure it out. We'll never know. <laughs> Guess what was just published? <laughs> so 2021, Zerkov. I'm going to actually make sure I actually got this in front of me because I'm going to be pronouncing his name incorrectly. Otherwise, uh, yeah, Zerkov and, oh dear, what's his first name? I don't know his first name. Zerkov and um, Megan Jacobs. Zerkov and Jacobs. They've just published in Zoo Journal Linsog this like massive review of Nanopterygius. And they basically blow everything I've just said out of the water. It turns out Nanopterygius is known from like hundreds and hundreds of specimens <laughs> of like four species. And they've all been like misunderstood and like wrongly classified. There's loads of specimens from European Russia, from Svalbard, from Franz Josef lands. They've been identified as other things. They've been identified as Ophthalmosaurus or as a genus called Yasakovia or a genus called Paraophthalmosaurus. And it hasn't been noticed that they've got the key features that make them Nanopterygius. Uh, Zerkov and Jacobs also, um, you know, uh, published really good photographs of the holotype. They got access to it. Uh, I don't know how exactly. Maybe, maybe just using ladders. I don't know. But um, um, and the whole th is definitely an ophthalmosaurid. It's got like it's it's indistinguishable from ophthalmosaurids in like loads of key characters. And um, all the stuff about it being super weird is due to misunderstanding its anatomy. Even the whole thing about it having tiny like uh, uh, limbs and uh, reduced pectoral girdle. It's like, well, did you actually measure it? <laughs> because in actual fact, its proportions are just the same as other ophthalmosaurids. It's a relatively small animal. It's like, I don't know, like three meters long or something. And von Herner, who named it bracket, who named it Nanopterygius, meaning dwarf um, fin, he really fixated on the size of these small limbs without really appreciating the fact that most of the limbs were incomplete that they were missing like in you know, all the fingers and stuff so he was really he's like wow that looks really tiny yeah that's because you're just looking at the humerus <laughs> and the radius and ulna or something so um so yeah this giant study yeah totally blows out of the water what we've got um two other things really briefly there's this really beautiful kimridge clay paddle called bracket terigius um found in 1920 something i think and then it's a right uh, fourth fin and then a left fourth fin was discovered later on and is exactly the same and appears to be from the same individual so i find that really hard to believe found in the same town smallmouth sands weymouth or same village but um I don't know if you find a bit of an animal and then a hundred years later, you find another bit of an animal in the same place. It could be from the same exact same specimen, but I don't know. It's like, imagine, imagine you're walking along a beach and you find a cod's head. And then a year later, you're walking along a beach and you find a cod's tail. It's the same cod. <laughs> Wouldn't you think these are probably two different cods? Are there other reasons to think that it might, might be the same individual, like that it's from a quarry, something they've tracked where it comes from or something like that? Yeah. <laughs> They're about the same size. Yeah. Um, I'm just, isn't it more likely that, you know, interesting thing about fossil animals, okay, little known secret, there wasn't one of them. There were like thousands, possibly millions of individuals. <laughs> So, so if you find a fossil of one of them in a particular horizon, you find another one. I don't know. It's interesting. 
<laughs> but bracket Terigius, right? Um, so, but at this point in history, in the by the late Jurassic, um, all ichthyosaurs, all the like weird, interesting ichthyosaurs of the Triassic and early Jurassic, they're long gone, and all of the ichthyosaurs. There's only basically only one lineage persisting beyond the uh, middle Jurassic, the parvipelvians, the streamlined ones with the like pointed dorsal fin and um, relatively small hind limbs and a reduced pelvis, parvipelvians. Classic ichthyosaurs like Ichthyosaurus, uh, Stenopterygius, the ophthalmosaurids. So all the ichthyosaurs at this point are pretty samey. Mm. Um, and their paddles, their forefins are the, the sort where the humerus is really distinct and often has really big muscular trochanters. The distal end of the uh, humerus, you've got two or three facets, and then the radius and ulna have just become like big discs. And sometimes there's one of the wrist bones called the intermedium that contacts the distal end of the humerus as well. So you can have three facets with the, the middle one for a modified wrist bone. And this wrist bone looks like the radius and ulna, but then all of the other bones, the carpals and all the phalanges from the many digits they have, because they, they tend to evolve accessory digits, these ichthyosaurs, parvopelvians, um, can have up to 10 or 11 digits. Um, all of those bones are uh, like, you know, discs, big, big, thick discs. So um, this uh, brachypterygius humerus, it's... Uh, I'll show you one of the beautiful photos we published. There you go. That's a bracket to Rigius humerus. Mm. So it's got this three facet form, mm -hmm. right? So some people, this is another case of taxonomic redundancy. They go around for years thinking that that's a unique thing of bracket to Rigius. Keep that in mind. Skip forward to the 1970s. And there's one researcher in particular who during the 70s and 80s did a lot to change our understanding of ichthyosaurs and their diversity and it's a man called Chris McGowan and if you know anything about ichthyosaurs like he's the main guy from the late 20th century who did tons and tons of work on them um I could say a lot about him but this isn't the time and um he described this brilliant big Kimbridge clay ichthyosaur skull from Norfolk and uh, what's the exact, I want to know the exact place and I've forgotten it. Stowbridge or Stowbridge in Norfolk, 1976. Really awesome skull. It's an ophthalmosaurid, but it's, um, it's got like rounded snout tips as opposed to pointed snout tips. The base of the rostrum, like where it joins, like just in front of the eyes, is really deep. Doesn't have like a steep forehead that narrows your rostrum. It's, it keeps it like really thick and deep. The back of its head is really quite, you know, long and chunky relative to that of other ophthalmosaurids. And it's got big chunky teeth. It looks like a, a really powerful, bitey ophthalmosaurid. These animals aren't dainty or slim jawed. Mm -hmm. And he calls it Grendelius Mordax. <laughs> <laughs> After Grendel from the poem Beowulf. Grendel is the monster who hates the sound of music and comes to the barn, comes to the settlement and kills people during the night. And Mordax means biter. So it's Grendel Biter or Grendel the Biter or the Biter Grendel. One of those things. It's a really cool name. Mm -hmm. I can't help but say it. 
as I just did, Grendelius Mordax. So that's 1976. But then, right, so Grendelius is in all the books. Um, Chris McGowan talks about it in, you know, his uh, Dinosaur Spitfires and Sea Dragons book, a well-known book on the biomechanics of Mesozoic animals. Um, yeah, cool. But then we come to the late 1990s. And in 1997, McGowan describes what seems to be a second specimen of Grendelius Mordax. And this one has got, like, again, a really cool skull. That's the skull. You can see it on display today at the Sedgwick mm. in Cambridge. But it includes a four paddle. And the four paddle, or forefin, or forelimb, whatever you want to use it, has got this configuration. It's got this three facet, extra facet for the intermediate. So McGowan says, oh, no. <laughs> That's not how he speaks at all. <laughs> but he's he's an expat British uh, guy who's mostly worked in Canada. <laughs> so Chris McGowan says, oh, no, this shows that it was Brachypterygius all along. Grendelius is just stinking stupid Brachypterygius. So he synonymizes it. So bye-bye, um, Grendelius Mordax. Now it's just Brachypterygius. A bunch of ichthyosaur experts regard them as the same thing. So the, the name Grendelius Mordax is gone forever. Now it's assumed to be synonymous with Brachypterygius extremus. A few researchers say that uh, we should still keep the the forefin of this new grandelius slash bracket specimen is a bit different from the original small mouth sans bracket so now let's have two species of bracket teridius bracket more dax and uh, that is the opinion that we went with in this stupid 2020 ichthyosaur paper but what has happened in the intervening years in the intervening years it turns out that is a very long story, and I'm not going to go into it now. I do, I do it in a Chechpod Zoology article. But um, that supposedly key diagnostic trait for Brachypterygius, that thing with the three facets on the humerus, with one of them being for the intermedium, that turns out to be no big flipping deal. It's widespread in ophthalmosaurid ichthyosaurids. It's all over the place. Ophthalmosaurids from totally disparate parts. It's quite a lot of ophthalmosaurid ichthyosaurs. It's like going on for, I don't know, over 20s. Certainly over 20, probably over 30 taxa now. Um, genus level taxa. It's like in animals widespread on the phylogeny, they have that condition. So it's either evolved convergently multiple times or it's just like widespread primitive trait. And if you find it, it doesn't mean you've got a bracket pterygius. So Grindelius, based on the skull, is most similar to a bunch of species from Russia that were originally named Otchevia. And they are now mostly regarded by ichthyosaur specialists as the same thing as, as other species of Grindelius. So we've now got good remains for Grindelius of several species from European Russia, as well as from the Kimridge clay. And it's no, there's no reason to think it's the same as Brachypteridius. Brachypteridius is something else. When they're put into phylogenies, they do actually occupy very distinct positions. Brachypteridius is now only known from a forelimb. It uh, appears to be like one early diverging ophthalmosaurid. Well, specifically, an early diverging platypterogene ophthalmosaurid. Ophthalmosaurids include ophthalmosaurids and platypterogenes, whereas Grendelius is part of like a, 
um, a clade of platypterygine ophthalmosaurids that's close to platypterygius proper, which is a platypterygius is a whole world of pain. It's multiple species found in you know locations worldwide. But, um, so I guess the question with this sort of thing is always for me. Diagnoses are just asking for this, right? We know this is not how phylogeny works. You don't have a particular thing that makes you a particular thing. This is what cladistics was designed to solve. And the way we should be placing things, I know it's done for convenience, because who wants to do stick things in and do a new cladistic analysis every time you find something, right? But that is kind of what we should be doing. Stick its characters in the latest matrix, run it and see where it comes out. Diagnoses are obsolete, I would argue. I know, I understand why they exist, but they are philosophically obsolete. Well, I would say, I would say that today, I mean, your diagnosis, uh, we, we, still, we still do tend to do diagnoses the old fashioned way, which is that we look at a specimen and we say, there's a list of things there that aren't seen in other taxa, therefore those are its diagnostic traits. They often aren't quite consistent with the actual distribution of traits in a phylogeny. I know what you're saying, but all this is solved by sticking it in this cladistic analysis and letting the machine do its work. Where I was trying to go with that was that you, once you've thrown your uh, specimen of interest into a, a phylogeny, um, you can you find the diagnostic traits based on the distribution of characters. Yes, you do. It does on, tell you on the tree, but itself. it doesn't tell you in the future because they're always adding new characters. You're always discovering these smatterings of this diagnostic character all over the place. This is what the computers are designed to solve. Yes. So doing this as a, I understand you. You just you you um, obviously science might be slowed down tremendously if every time you found some sort of representative specimen you say, hey, we've got a such and such from so and so where it hasn't been found before, and here are this diagnostic traits. I understand that this is tremendously more convenient and may even be necessary given time constraints and stuff, but we know this isn't right, right? <laughs> That specimen should be going into ecclesiastic analysis because it just does lead itself to this exact situation. Oh, I, it doesn't fit the, it fits the diagnostic characters, characteristic for this or it doesn't and therefore we're gonna move it around and then, oh, someone does ecclesiastic analysis and I'll know all that was rubbish. Mm. It happens mm. all the time. And it's because diagnostic characters are not the way we should be deciding phylogeny or placement well, of the tree. Yeah, this this ties into quite interestingly into a larger thing, a, a larger issue with ichthyosaurs specifically, which is in 1997. So when McGowan used that forelimb character to make that taxonomic decision about Grandelius, 1997, how many ichthyosaur phylogenies existed? Yeah, not precisely zero. The first one was published in 1999 by Lioski Matani, who was a student of um, uh, Chris McGowan. So Chris McGowan wasn't doing cladistics with ichthyosaurs. It didn't exist. Yeah. And in fact, something that I've written about uh, off the back of another ichthyosaur thing I'm involved in, the Appleby Project, is that Chris McGowan, and I don't mean this to be negative. How many times have I, do I say that this podcast? But he was a big advocate of a, there's this tradition in ichthyosaurs, a 20th century tradition of using um, 
I'm trying to think of the exact right term. Morphometrics is what comes to mind, but basically proportions. They use yeah. proportions to work out who was deserving of recognition as a species and which specimens belonged to the um, to those species. Which, yeah. as someone who's not numerically inclined, I really hate that, and <laughs> I also really hate it because I think it's just biologically unrealistic, given the things that change, like in ontogeny, but also that um, we all know that we all know there's cases where proportions like utterly can be absolutely can be diagnostic, uh, no question about it. But I think there's probably more cases where they're not, <laughs> because instead the the key thing, if you want to work out whether specimen X belongs to species Y or Z is some like more precise, you know, like anatomical trait. Yeah, but I guess the argument, I, 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 I remember talking to you about this, talking to you about this before and seeing some of his um, actual diagrams and things, and they're just not fine grained enough really for this sort of work, I think. I mean, what can you do? It's in the 80s or whatever. But I do think that all, um, anatomical characteristics are morphometrics. They are all proportions. It's just that we're atomizing them because everything is a shape and it's a numerical shape. And you're just okay. saying this got bigger or that got smaller or disappeared. That's all, all just, right. that's yeah. all just proportions. So I do think there's sort of a synthesis to be had here. And this is not what he was doing, for, by the way. I, you know, I don't think he really was doing this, but I can sort of see the, well, <laughs> The reality of what he was doing was way less fine-grained than that, right? Um, but I do think there is a thing to pursue here, um, that if we had infinite computing power and infinite time to do these things, then you could start to look at that stuff, right? Like literally mm. what proportional differences and how they... But you'd have to... Yeah, as you say, it's, it's greatly complicated by... Um, ontogeny and all sorts of things and what counts as a very as a significant proportional variation because um i don't know when i was working on quetzalcoatlus for example the same individual can vary from by 10 percent or more on one side to the other right just didn't seem to matter that much whether one limb bone was 10 percent shorter if they made it up a little bit in another limb bone right so you could have a yeah, a radius on one side is is significantly longer than the radius on the other side, for example, and that sort of stuff would come out as fairly strong signal in a pure morphometric sort of um, look at this, which would be inappropriate because it's in the same individual. individual. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but I can sort of see. I think this is an interesting sort of idea to pursue. How much does how do proportion? Because obviously, this is how we're recognizing things as well, right? The proportions of animals are how we recognize them as the things they are. I don't mean on a very small grain, but certainly on a big grain, you, mm. you know, um, yeah. that's how we tell. Um, yeah. And so I do think that's, it's not a crazy thing to pursue, um, but I think it's time has not come. Uh, what is the status of Kesselquatlas uh, studies, by the way, since you know. mentioned it? You I don't know. know. Yeah, because it's been a long time now. Where are those papers? I thought, they were, I thought they were out. No, they're not. I haven't published yet. Okay. Well, yeah. waiting every day, checking, final, checking the final uh, review. Yeah. As as I, I For those of you who don't know, there's meant to be like three papers that describe the original 
Keswellis Northropy material as well as this so-called Keswellis. What do we call it? I was going to say uh, today we're we calling it spurt or species. Yeah, the smaller Spa. one. Spur. Yeah, it has got a name yet now, but I can't. I know. I know what it is. Yeah, it's Keswellis S P U H. Spa. Um, going back to ichthyosaurs, like let's just wrap this up with one last thing. Um, I wanted to talk about, um, you know, have you ever, you, you've painted ichthyosaurs? Hmm, that's a good question. I'm not entirely sure I have. Oh, I Maybe did a drawing haven't. of one once. Wow. But oh. yeah, I'm super not confident with them. Like I don't, I'd have to do yeah. have a lot more research before I felt like. Yeah, that. I've drawn them lots, but really badly. Because, um, yeah, the, the, those, those animals with those beautiful streamlined, you know, smooth shapes are just the, the worst, the worst to draw. You can't They're, put uh, any, you know, like interesting details on them. The way their bodies bend as well can be really tricky. So yeah. you've got to get that exactly right to get the sort of feeling of motion and stuff in them. Yeah, really tricky. Uh, yeah. tricky. And, and they have, yeah, and, and, you know, fossils with soft tissues and even pigment preserved basically do confirm that they were really chunky, like well insulated, very streamlined. Certainly I'm talking here about, the, the again, the parpapelvians, these, uh, these tonniform very streamlined animals um yeah kind of really it's weird it's weird because they feel like such a familiar well-known group of animals there's that but then they're also the fact that they are like shark-shaped reptiles is like if you actually think about that for a minute wait a minute like a uh, like so it's like a lizardy type thing but it's the shape of a dolphin or a shark it's like you know the look of their eyes and things would have been really quite alien quite weird. Or, or would it i don't know you know yeah exactly <laughs> who knows yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, yeah i did yeah obviously one of the sort of fascinating things especially with those later forms uh, you know the classic convergent evolution thing that happens in with swimming animals is um, mm. fairly extraordinary you start with such different things and end up at the same place basically um it happens with flying animals, but to a lesser extent, I think. Yeah, because there's so many different options available for colonizing the air, but for becoming a fast mover in the sea. Yeah, you've really um, pretty much just got to be one shape. Yeah. Yeah. So if, you want, if you want a mouth and a, you know. <laughs> yeah, and you want to chase things. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I've published a fair bit on ichthyosaurs, but it's all been on the one group. It's all been on parvipelvians and mostly on uh ophthalmosaurid parvipelvians although with um this animal from iraq that we published malawania that's not an ophthalmosaurid that was an ichthyosaurid and maybe we should do that sometime because there's a there's i think it's quite a lot and i've i have done it on tetrapod but it's in the dim and distant past and now it's been it's ruined and it's mostly non-findable mm. so um but yeah uh, and i wanted there's, there's a lot to say about ichthyosaur biology and what we think about you know um swimming behavior and sensory abilities and stuff maybe we should do that sometime um okie dokie yeah all right well what i've just been saying about kimmage clay ichthyosaurs at the time of speaking it's not published on technical zoology but by the time this episode's out it will have been published all right should we wrap it up let's wrap it up are you on the internet, John? I'm at johnconway.art or the John Conway on Twitter. And you're on Masto... Mastodon. <laughs>
Master You'll find links to that on my website and my Twitter. And if you want to join me on Masterdon, Masterdon. go to sauropods.win and sign up. Sauropods.win. I'm on Twitter at this baby's got a few surprises left in her sweetheart. He and Leia look out the cockpit window and see a squad of stormtroopers rushing into the far right of the hangar. Quickly, Han straps himself into the into the policy and Leia gets into the navigator's chair. I don't think that happens in the film, you know. Stormtroopers hurriedly set up like a large bazooka-like weapon. Behind them, the giant hangar door opens slowly. That doesn't happen. The door doesn't open. A laser gun appears on the Falcon and swings around to aim at the Imperial troops. The stormtroopers, preparing to fire their bazooka cannon, are hit by the Falcon's fire and are thrown about in all directions. Chewie rushes into the cockpit. That doesn't happen. Come on, come on, switch over. Let's hope we don't have a burnout. A laser hits the window near Chewie as he's sitting in his chair, <laughs> letting out a loud whelp. <laughs> Chewie quickly pulls back on the controls and the first stage of engine fire can be heard. Han flashes a big grin at Leia. See? Someday you're going to be wrong and I just hope I'm there to see it. Han looks at Chewie. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that, that's not how it's... She says, someday you're going to be wrong and I... Hope I'm there to. See. She doesn't say I hope I'm there to see it. I just say I, whatever. I'll, I'll have to. I'll have to do some research on that. Ah, Tizu. <laughs> it is. I mean, we've probably everyone's discussed this before, but it is really remarkable how bad the weapons are in Star Wars, isn't it? It's not just their aim; it's their destructive power is very poor. They've got a thing that can blow up a planet, and yet their handheld weapons seem to bounce off what glass. Now, you haven't you haven't seen you haven't seen the Mandalorian. The Ma- they oh. they they play on this. There's there's bits when <laughs> there's some um, scout troopers. I think that's the ones that ride on speeder bikes, and they're like trying to fire their weapon at like a tin can or something, and they can't hit it. And they're looking at the guns, shaking it. it? And they're like, what a piece of junk. Which I don't know. Does that does that make you feel better about the Star Wars universe or worse? Just, um, <clears throat> yeah. It's really common in all those things. Like the destructive power of weapons is, for some reason, massively underplayed in a lot of fiction, right? Yeah. Because you get hit by anything in a war, right? Even an old one. It's pretty. You get hit by a musket ball. It's pretty bad. You're having a bad day if that happens. <laughs> yeah. 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 And yet, in the f- far future, we've got far less powerful, <laughs> powerful weapons. <laughs> pew pew. <laughs> <laughs> On that note. On that note, farewell. Okay.